Hey now guys, today on the podcast, we have a conversation with the absolutely amazing legend, Rudy Sarzo. We'll see you on the other side. All right, how's everyone doing? This is Rob, your host, Rob School of Music Podcast. Every week we sit down and we get to talk with some of the greatest, most amazing musicians in the world, guitar players, bass players, drummers, producers, DJs, the list goes on. We have so many amazing guests lined up and you can check out the previous podcast to see some of the wonderful people I've had the pleasure of having conversations with. You know, we're still in the middle of this pandemic, guys, and the world's a little bit different, a little bit strange, but this allows me to feel close with everyone and I hope it lets everyone feel close with us. We have a physical location for our school here, our headquarters. We're used to having hundreds of lessons a week. And ever since the pandemic, we haven't been able to have any lessons. Thankfully, we transitioned to everything online. We're doing incredible work through Zoom with our music lessons. Our students are loving it. Our teachers are providing all kinds of supplemental material. Everyone is moving forward. We actually just launched or unveiled, I should say, our camp this summer. It's gonna be a three day long camp with music teachers and professionals from around the world teaching everyone on Zoom. It's gonna be broken down into hour long sessions. So you'll have a guitar lesson with an amazing guitar player maybe out in California. Take a break for an hour, come back on, and you'll have a songwriting lesson with a songwriter in Sweden, all from the comfort of your home with your air conditioning and your pajamas. It's gonna be outrageous, nothing like it has been done. You can find more about that at robschoolofmusic.com. We call it our music wizardry mini camp. We're going to come out wizards, music wizards. Today on the podcast, I got to talk to Rudy Sarzo. Um, I've never met Rudy in real life, but I've been familiar with his work forever. My first Aussie record was the tribute, Randy Rhodes tribute album. So um, Believer, I believe, is the second song on that record. Starts off with the bass right away. Incredible. And then, of course, he went on to be in Quiet Riot after Randy's untimely passing, and he played uh, the US Festival in 83 with Quiet Riot, and they had the number first number one metal record with um, Metal Health. So we got to talk about all of that, and he was very generous. Rudy told all these stories, you know, about rock and roll when it was rock and roll, and it was really, really cool. So thank you so much for tuning in, and without further ado, Rudy Sarzo. Good uh, conversation you have with him. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, that was very special as well. You know, I feel so lucky that you know we've had the school here. We do lessons, um, and then when everything went crazy with the quarantine, I said, "How can we do something different?" Because the whole culture within our school, you know, there's multiple lessons going on and people seeing each other. How can we bring everyone together in a really cool way? And I've been so lucky to be able to reach out to you know legends such as yourself and they're willing to you know talk to me for a bit so thank you absolutely uh what's your curriculum so what we do we do um guitar bass drums piano voice uh violin flute but mostly guitar bass piano voice that's you know our core and uh, all the teachers pretty much it's it's a sort of choose your own destiny sort of thing so we we assess the student and we adapt the curriculum to where they want to go. So let's say they want to 
only play Aussie songs. Well, we'll teach you only Aussie songs, but we're going to use those songs to teach you your theory and your timing and your feel and stuff like that. That's interesting because when I was teaching at Musonia, that's Randy Rhodes' mom's school, and Randy used to teach there. Wow. And uh, he would teach right next door to me. So when I first started uh, teaching there, I was already a member of, of that version of Choir Riot, the 70s version with Randy. And uh, so I asked him for pointers, and that's exactly what he told me. He says, uh, well, this is what I do. I break it down into two different things. I, the student will come to me with a song that they want to learn. Then I'll teach them the song. Then I'll teach them the theory behind that song. Yeah. So, yeah, so I started adapting that. And, and I've, I've been teaching ever since like that, you know, because I also, when I studied music in college, I was already playing in clubs professionally. So following the steps, and I'm talking about late 60s, which is there was no rock school whatsoever, you know. Right. I mean, there was barely a jazz band in the school, you know. And so we were just studying everything from, from scratch. And all the fundamentals that, that, that they were teaching me in the first semester, I was already applying that professionally, right. playing in clubs every night. So it was kind of like, what am I doing here? You know, I right. need to be more on a fast track. I get it. Seems to be, it seems to be what, what you guys do. So, so, so that's wonderful. Awesome. Thank you. That, that actually makes me feel very validated <laughs> in what we're doing. But yeah, a lot of our teachers, all of our teachers, really, they're either still currently gigging, you know, professionally or semi-professionally in the studio session stuff. So we try and give them a real world experience as opposed to, here's the way you have to play the E minor chord and your thumb stays here and it never moves. And like, you know, it has to be versatile and, and applicable in a real world setting. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, having the thumb in the back, you know, for pivoting. Yeah. I, that's, that's one of the things that I really enjoy also teaching face to face is that you could actually look at the student and, and look at the body and, and walk around them and say, okay, this is how you actually place your, your shoulders and your arms mm -hmm. and things like that. That sometimes it's a little bit more challenging to do it if you're not in the same room. Totally. We, I mean, we, yeah. we had to adapt on the fly. Um, I think I mentioned in one of these a couple of weeks ago, like the town where our mm -hmm. physical school is, where I am currently, we were the, uh, the second COVID death in New York State occurred right in our town. So we were we jumped online before anyone else was shutting stuff down because I kind of had an inside line that something was going on. So we had to adapt very quickly. And luckily, most of our teachers have students that they were teaching outside of the school around the country, you know, on Skype and things like that. So we just kind of reeled it in and made it work. But definitely that in-person experience is very hard to replicate online. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but, but then again, the fundamentals can. Right. You know, and, and if you have enough of a space, you know, that you can actually see the student, watch how they're playing, mm -hmm. then you can actually make comments, you know, yeah. about it and try to correct whatever they, they might be doing wrong. Totally. Uh, you got some questions for me? I know that you emailed me some, but there seems yeah. to be like people popping in and I, I want to see if there's any other questions. Totally. Yeah, we'll, we'll jump. Usually I'll jump back and okay. forth. So I'll, I'll ask one okay. here and then I'll. If ever we're talking, you see me go like this. I'm just trying to read what the people are saying. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. And if you see me go like this, it's just, I just fell asleep. Okay. That's okay. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. So I got my, I got my energy out. drink here. So I got the <laughs> caffeine. <laughs> um, all right. So, I mean, legendary career, uh, so many huge stages. I was just watching the, uh, that us festival gig from 83. Mm-hmm. What, what's that like? You know, like how do you manage the nerves when you, you know, you come out on stage and there's, oh, that, so, well, you know, in the, in, in in the case of Quiet Riot, and, and I just say in the case of Quiet Riot, because we're applying the question to that certain event, which is the Oz Festival, being in front of 350,000 people. The band had, had been briefly together. We uh, Our first show was March 18th, 18th and 19th at the Roxy in, in, uh, in Los Angeles in 1983 so from march by may uh memorial day weekend which is which just happened right uh, of 1983 we were playing in front of 350,000 people now for me it was it, it was home because i prior to that i had been playing with ozzy right so with us you know we we did some stadiums and we did you know big shows and a lot of arenas so you know 15, 20,000 people, 250,000. It's just a blur. Right. <laughs> Up to the first hundred, first hundred people, it's a blur. <laughs> it's just a mass of people, you know. And Quiet Riot, the Randy Rose version, in, was the type of band that it didn't matter how many people were in the audience. We always gave the same show. We just went for it. You know, and it was an era that everybody went for it, not just us, but everybody else did. And that's why it was so exciting. You know, the music, you know, sure. it was a lot of fire, go out there and do it, have fun, you know, rock, rock out, rock the place, you know. Uh, it's almost like you have a little, a brief moment in, in history right. to do something that is going to be unforgettable. And if you don't do it, somebody else will after you. And you totally. will be forgotten, never, never to be seen again. <laughs> you know? So it was a must to go out there and do the show of your life every single night. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I was a musician. Uh, you know, I grew up, I was born in 83, actually. So I, I found guitar um, when I was about 12 years old. And my guitar teacher... Uh, on like the third lesson, he turned me on to Ozzy, and he said, "You need to have this record." Yeah. Uh, and and he he, yeah. he gave it to me, and to me, you know, there wasn't internet and stuff back then. So in my mind, the dudes on that record, that must be Ozzy's band forever, you know, even mm-hmm. though it was so many years removed from it. And I don't realize that Randy wasn't around, and 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 so on and so yeah. forth, but. To me, like whenever I, you know, I turn all my students onto that. I say, this is the quintessential Aussie thing. You got to hear this. You know, the band was on fire. Um, what, what was that experience like? Like, that was well, a solid. Yeah, it's interesting that your teacher pulled out tribute because uh, tri- uh, Blizzard of Oz and Diary of a Madman were recorded before Tommy Aldrich and I joined the band. Mm-hmm. So we didn't play on the records, obviously. And the difference between tribute 
and the studio recordings, in addition to Tommy and myself, is the fact that by, by then, Randy knew the material. You know, this might sound really strange, but if you ever make, you know, anybody who's ever made a record, and this is, it applies to every, every record that I make, when you're in the studio, you're just creating. You're just in the whole process of creating the music. Once you get out of the studio and perform in front of a live audience, that's when the music comes alive. Sure. It's happened to me so many times. Like, it's okay, I made a record and this is the way that it's the song goes. Because when you make a record, you're in the studio outside of the engineer and the producer and maybe, you know, the manager of the band or girlfriends or whatever. Nobody else is around. So you're just like under a microscope, you know, playing and making sure that everything is spot on or, or everything coordinates, you know, all the notes, <laughs> the chords, everything. Right. Once you go live, that's like all that goes out the window. Now you're performing. Now you're living the music. And it's just, it takes a whole different, different uh, meaning completely. So by the time that we recorded uh, what became known as Tribute, now there's a controversy about that record. <laughs> on, on the credits, it said, recorded live in Montreal, right? That was so, okay. Let me give you a little background on, on that on that information. We did about three, let me see, three, no, actually we, we, we did, okay, we did one King Biscuit Hour, one Westwood, one audio, we did two. Because the first, but, and, I, and I can't really recall which one came first, Westwood One Audio or King Biscuit, but the one in Montreal, Ozzy was not happy with the results. So that went in the shelf. Wow. That tape, not to be heard by anybody, right? And we, about, about two or three, three weeks later, we re-recorded that in, in Indianapolis, in Indianapolis. Uh, okay, so that's the one that was released as, as, as a live record, in addition to one that became known as Bathead Soup. That was recorded in Cleveland, like two weeks into the band's tour wow. in 1981 for Blizzard of Oz, right? Okay, so Randy passes away and they, you know, Ozzy and Sharon decide to release a live record with, uh, with Randy. On the back of the album, it claims to be from Montreal, which makes sense because that was never released. That was never broadcast. It was in the shell because Ozzy did not like the way it, the way it sounded for some reason. Right. He heard things that he would play to me and, and, he, and he'll go, you hear that? And I'll go, it, it sounds funny <laughs> to me. You know? And uh, that would make him frustrated, you know? Uh, so there, there's, there's, there's a controversy on the internet that now we have such technology that you can take the songs and put it on Pro Tools and compare the tracks. And some people say, well, the solo is from Montreal and the rest of the record is from Cleveland. Oh, wow. So like, and you, I, I'm going like, you know what? Life's too short. Right. <laughs> I'm just glad that I'm playing on the record. I move on with that. Right. So nevertheless, it was, it was a whole different experience to hear Randy playing live 
not because he was not a great studio musician. I'm not saying that. I'm saying it that once he created the music, he recorded it and performed it live night after night, it would just progress. It would, he would wow. get deeper into the song and there would be more expressions to his music, which is what it should be. Music is very organic. It's, it's alive, you know. And if you record something live, you're just capturing that moment, you know, because the musician is going to play it a little bit different the next day. The band as a whole is going to play it different. The audience is going to be different. It's right. a different audience, a different city, a different everything, different water, different different breakfast you had mm -hmm. you know, in the morning. Yeah, That's awesome. That's so cool. Yeah. I, all those little facts, man, that's, you know, to me as, as a kid, I was like, this is it. They, you know, I didn't, you grow up, you start to think, but that's really cool. And that must've been so cool to watch it organically grow and the songs and, and him kind of fall into yeah. it. Yeah. Another thing that, that is the difference between those two albums and, and diary. And I'm not saying better, better technology. Worse, just for different. Yeah. Are you there? Yeah, I'm oh. there. It froze for a second. Yeah, Hello. I'm good. Okay. Okay, sorry about that. Yeah, uh, one of the things that, uh, oh yeah, yeah, I hear you really good. Uh, one, one of the major factors, uh, the difference goes for, you know, I'm not saying it was better or worse, but Tom, Tommy Aldridge is playing. Tommy Aldridge brought in a leaning forward drumming style, something that he developed for, for dec you know, for at least a decade maybe a decade and a half because he was playing with Black Oak, Arkansas back in the 60s. And we're talking 81. So we're talking 60s and 70s and Pat Travers. So that's a very boogie rock, you know, like, uh, like ZZ Top on steroids mm -hmm. yeah. type of feel, you know, with double bass drum. So Tommy, his playing leaned forward, right? So, you know, Randy grabbed on to that and started playing like that too. I don't think he... He didn't lean as much forward when, when we used to play in Quiet Riot, uh, mostly having to do that. The music did not lend itself to that. Right, know? right. Uh, but, but with Tommy's drumming, he just, you know, because if, if you look at a drummer, he's really the conductor mm -hmm. of the band, or at least he yep. should be, you know. Yep. So that, that sets the tempo and the feel of so much, you know, as the guy and back there just beating on things you know you just you know fall you, you you can either play with it or play against it if you play against it it's not gonna work You're done yeah yeah so you just you know follow in that group very cool i see one of the questions here so after the tribute it was the speak of the devil and then you went back to quiet riot for uh metal health so what was the recording yeah. process like for speak of the devil uh <laughs> Well, you know, Speak of the Devil was in the works even before Randy passed away. Uh, if, if anybody's really inter interested in lots of minute details about that period, I wrote a book called Off the Rails. You can yes. download it on Kindle or print on Amazon, and it's all there. But just to give you a, a, a synopsis of, of that, it was basically... There was a little bit of a competition going on between the Black Sabbath at the time with Ronnie James Dio. Right. Later on, I played with Dio and the band, which I, I 
I love Ronnie dearly, you know. That version of Black Sabbath and the and Ozzy as a, as a solo artist. So somehow the record company got wind that Black Sabbath was working on a solo record. And so the record company told Ozzy, okay, you come out with one, but you got to record it before theirs come out. Right. You know, theirs released. So there, there was a bit of a rush to do that. And, and before you knew it, here, there, you know, after Randy passed away, there came the time that we went in to record it. And we only had about five days to learn material that I personally was not very familiar with. And I just, I was just having a conversation with Brad Gillis uh, a couple of days ago. He wasn't prepared either. Right. And I know Tommy wasn't, you know. And uh, so it, it, was, it, was, it was a little bit challenging because Ozzy did not really show up to rehearsals. So we had like five days of rehearsing Ozzy era Black Sabbath songs, which are completely different structures than mm -hmm. the one, than the, the Dio song, you know, the Dio Black Sabbath era that was more song format oriented. The right. Black Sabbath versions were more like, uh, like grunge. They were really yeah. way ahead of the time. They were more like uh, the godfathers of grunge, you know, mm -hmm. just really cool parts put together, but not in a commercial sense. I think the most commercial song they ever did was Paranoid. And mm -hmm. it's not really, I mean, it's the title of the song, but the word Paranoid, it's not in the song. So it's not like somebody's singing paranoid, paranoid, right. or maybe maybe paranoid. No, it's not even in there. You know, that's a great so, point. Yeah, so <laughs> it's it's one of those songs that it's simple. There's like three parts, hmm. but if you do not know which part comes next, I've jammed with people and they just completely get lost because they're mm -hmm. a little bit similar. Mm -hmm. You know the sections. You know, like the uh, the uh, the 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 pre-chorus. And the bridge, they're pretty similar. Yes. You know, they're going yes. up and down, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, so we recorded that completely live at the Ritz, two nights, and uh, no overdubs. Wow. What you hear of the band playing, I have no idea about, about, uh, about Ozzy, if there was any overdubs or not. I, I don't know. But I can tell you this. Me... I quit the band right after I recorded that. As soon as I came back wow. to LA, I I I, I call up Sharon and I said, "Listen, I'm uh, you know I'm gonna I'm gonna join the new Quiet Riot band," and uh, and that was it for me. I never really saw them again for for a long, long time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the Quiet Riot, you know, that second time with you being in them, that's such an amazing time for you know metal music and stuff because you know, the way it charted. And then, I mean, just, you hear those songs, they're epic, epic, timeless songs. And sometimes I feel like, you know, in the Motley Crues and, and the Def Leppards and, and the Guns N' Roses, Quiet Riot, like they, they started a lot of that scene. So that's epic that you get to be there for that. Yeah, you know, what, what was really interesting about the early 80s is that what became known as the Sunset Strip Mm -hmm. Sound, you know, which is basically Quiet Riot, Motley Crue, Rat, Great White, Dokken, you know, all those bands mm -hmm. that come out of that. Great that bands. That have been around. That have been around from uh, in the 70s. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. So this is what happened. Van Halen was the last rock band to get signed in the 70s out of Los Angeles. And they were part of the Sunset Strip. They used to play at Gazzari's, which is mm -hmm. the Sunset Strip, you know? And so they were the last band because right after that, The Knack had a big hit with My Sharona. Right. And then Devo and Blondie from the East Coast and, you know, every new wave band and the English new wave and punk. So mm -hmm. that's where radio was at. That's why they wanted to play. So if you were not, if you didn't have like really short hair, if you did not look like Elvis Costello, you were screwed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, uh, so we went into survival mode. By we, I mean all of us. We knew, we knew, okay, we're going to stick, stick it out. Something's going to happen because, you know, all of a sudden we can't turn into new wave musicians. This is not what we do. This is not what we aspire Thank to. Thank goodness. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I can't do it. It's, yeah. just, it's like saying the car is turning into a uh, 80s metal band. Right. No, that's not what they do. You know, so you have to be the real deal, you know. Right. Of course, there's bands that are timeless because they have so many cool elements that, let's say, Cheap Trick. Cheap Trick would, would have been a great 60s band. They were a great 70s band. They were a great 80s band. You know, they're timeless because they have right. so many elements that crosses over to all these different eras. Timeless music. But if you were going to talk about, let's say, Devo, Devo is pretty much new wave. Devo, yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that's Devo. You know, they, they're, they're, they, that's what they do. You know, they're not, they're not going to all of a sudden, you know, turn into an 80s band, you know, a metal band, heavy right. band, you know. But they're, they have their, their, own, their own space, their own category, you know. So, you know what, I've gone into, I'm so stuck in the 70s right now that, what was the original question again? Oh, I was just the, the experience of being, you know, in Quiet Riot, right, as oh, yeah. that, it, it was taken off, yeah. the Sunset Strip, that whole scene. Yeah, well, it, it, it was taking off in the 70s, then New Wave of Metal came in, and that was it, they shut the doors. So, we went into survival mode, and by that I mean is, you know, we were doing anything possible to, to keep our music alive and our hopes and our dreams. Uh, Randy went off and joined Ozzy in 1979. Kevin put his own band together called Dubrow, which a lot of the songs that were written in that era wound up on the Metal Health record. Oh, wow. And I, w I was living with Kevin at the time, so I got to play with him the songs live, you know, a lot of songs. And... Uh, Meanwhile, there's a huge wave of metal coming from England. You know, bands like Def Leppard, Saxon, sure. and Motorhead, and Iron Maiden. The new guys. wave of British heavy metal, yeah. Yeah, the new wave. Yeah. Okay. That was happening in England, but LA didn't care about it. You know, it wasn't like you have YouTube and you got social media that if something right. if something is really cool, it goes viral and everybody everybody exposed to it. You know, globally, no. Back then, it was like, no, we don't care. We don't want to know about it. So, I, I in '81, I joined Ozzy, and I started touring. And with and our opening bands, one on the first tour were Motorhead, 
Wow. And then and then later on, uh, Def Leppard for their high and dry record. Yeah, their second record. And then after that, we had we had Magnum, Starfighters, UFO, you know, all of these bands. And I knew something, something, something was bubbling. Something was up, you know. But LA had no idea. Meanwhile, wow. Kevin is struggling to get a record deal with Dubrow. And right before Randy passed away, Kevin asked Randy and myself, you know, for our blessings, for him to rename his band Quiet Riot. And we said, yeah, of course, you know. So Randy passes away. And I'm in Los Angeles about to go to New York to work on the Speak of the Devil record. And I get a call from, from Kevin. He says, listen, would you like to come down to the studio? We're, I want you to play on, on Thunderbird, which he wrote that song for Randy when Randy left Choir Riot. Mm -hmm. I used to play that song with Kevin in Dubrow. You know, and so I knew it. I mean, I came up with the with it with a baseline for that, and so I went in the studio and recorded the song. And you know, it went by really fast. You know, with Carlos and Frankie, of course, Kevin, and then they had some extra time, and they started asking me, "Well, do you remember like Slick Black Cadillac, which is the only song that was a carryover from the Randy Rhodes era onto the Metal Health right. record?" Uh, Kevin wrote that. Kevin wrote that song as a challenge from Randy to write a good song. <laughs> Randy said, I dare you to write a good song, a great song. So Kevin came back with that one. And, be, and that became like a, an iconic Quiet Riot song, you know. Sure. And, uh, and I got to record about two or three more, at least two more, for the Mental Health Record. And this is bef even, even right before I left to to New York to work on the Speak of the Devil record, you know, and here I am in, in the studio, Pasha, with the guys, Frankie, Frankie Benelli. I had been playing with him since 1972 when we, when we met him in Florida. And I kind of like, I, he, he was my, my musical mentor. He's, he's, the, he's the only, he's the first drummer who taught me, the only one who actually taught me about rhythm section that right. relationship you know where, where where does the bass fit within the rhythm section you know my role so work uh, playing with him was like second nature you know and then of course kevin what we we had a history with choir ride and dubrow and then carlos who i knew from the the local scene he was in a band called snow and we used to do shows together so it felt really comfortable felt like home because I had really lost the joy of playing after Randy passed away. You know, we, right. we would go on stage with the same castle production, the castle and the dwarf running around. And the first, the opening song to our show was actually Randy playing uh, Diary of a Madman. That was our intro. So it was, I, 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 I did not know how to deal with it. I didn't have the right self-improvement tools to work with that, of what's going on. Mm -hmm. 
you know, what, you know, I, I was not aware of my responsibility or the responsibility of all of those who are left behind to celebrate the music of our fallen bandmates. Because if we don't, that music just disappears. Right. You know, or it's not performed pro properly. Because, you know, this is, I, I hear a lot of wonderful tributes to Randy's music, and I am so appreciative of it. But then again, I know what it sounds like to play with Randy. Right. And I know the certain elements and, and the nuances, you know. Yeah, the intangible magic. Yeah. So yeah. anytime that I can actually step on stage with anybody and, and bring that, bring that I was there factor into yeah. Randy's music, I, I feel that that's my responsibility. No, no matter what the situation is, if somebody is celebrating Randy's music, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be that's there awesome. to make sure that it's, it's performed properly, you know. So, uh, so yeah, I joining. So right after I finished the uh, recording of Speak of the Devil at the Ritz, I, I made the decision to go into the unknown, <laughs> which was uh, joining the Metal Health version of Quiet Riot, just because I, I needed joy in my life. I needed really to the joy of making music again, which I completely lost. I think that's really incredible. I think, you know, us as, as, you know, fan musicians, but fans of music as well to have, you said it so perfectly, you know, you were there, that factor to be able to perform with other people and take that energy forward. Like that's just the transference of it. That that's mm -hmm. really, really cool. So um, when let's go to the beginning. So when did you start, playing you know how you does like, it like when it was a baby <laughs> yeah like you know like what's what's the journey like you know why what made what drew you to the base let you know yeah the journey i i don't know how many musicians of my generation you've spoken with but we all have one thing in common the beatles mm -hmm. 1964 ed sullivan show yeah and everybody has a different reason you know my reason was i was a fat little kid i was 13 years old I was invisible to girls living in New Jersey, West New York, New Jersey. And I saw the, the reaction of the girls on Ed Sullivan mm -hmm. to the Beatles performance. And I said, I want that. That's yeah. it. That's it. I found my purpose in life. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it was purely out of wanting to be, to be noticed, you know, and I thought music is going to be my vehicle for that. You know, little did I know about the journey of becoming a musician, which, which is, it, it's an endless journey. Right. It's, it, it's, you know, people ask me, do I practice? Do I do this? It's like, yeah. do, you, do you breathe? <laughs> <laughs> it's the same thing. It's like, I, I, I don't even think about it. I just do it. You know, I just go ahead and I, I wake up every morning make the coffee, sit in front of my TV, go uh, bypass the news, go straight <laughs> to YouTube. And I got some certain YouTube channels that I go to and I get, it's like a rabbit hole. Uh -huh. One thing leads to the other, you know, and I start working on this, working on that. Mostly, mostly uh, theory, music theory, you know. Uh, that was one of my next questions. Okay. So theory, yeah. 
How important do you think theory is to the whole oh, of a musician? It's from going to, from goo goo gaga, gaga, you know, baby talk, mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. having an, a, 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 an adult conversation with somebody, you know. I like that. Yeah, you, you, you can spend your whole life going goo goo gaga and, uh, or, or pointing at things, ah, you know, like a caveman. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but if you, if, you, if you really want to be eloquent in your in your music, you know, not only do you need an education, one thing is to have an education, but you need to work with teachers that 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 give you the tools. One thing is getting the tools. One thing is knowing how to apply the tools. Sure. You know, this is how you hold a hammer, and this is how you do it. And instead of like, hey, here, here's a hammer. Good luck. Figure it out. <laughs> Figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, you know, it's, 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 it's a must. It's a must. And, and, and the, the more I listen to, to new music, the more I realize that there's more of a need for education, you know, yes. and not just, not just knowledge, but academia, a certain sequence of learning things one one door opens to another door of learning you know i i find myself in a at my age i've been doing it for so long that it's really hard for me to commit myself to like okay here's triads okay which is great i mean i'm working on my triads and doing our pages and all of that and and uh uh voice leading all of that okay but there's a certain point that i go you know what I'm doing this already, okay, so I know what I'm doing. So I just bypass and I go fast forward into something else. But for but then again, I've been doing this for 50 years. You know. For somebody that's young, I really believe that a proper academia, a sequence of information being revealed or how to do it, it's 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 the it's the perfect steps. And but the problems that we have nowadays, like you were talking about. Kids want to bypass that. And when yeah. I say kids, it's anybody who is still living at home. <laughs> if you're not a professional musician living outside of, you know, outside of, outside of your parents' house, you're a kid. Okay. Yep. Yep. <laughs> you know, so, so, yeah, because we all want to go up there and do it. You know, music is so emotional and we just want to, we got something to say, we got something to, express ourselves and and it's like the the quicker we do it the better you know mm -hmm. but there needs to be steps and i don't mean baby steps but just steps yeah no a sequence that's a really brilliant way to say it because it's you know the information is here and you got to go but 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 to get there you can't leapfrog it you got to go yeah. in order so yeah. well said yeah yeah yeah. Um, all right, let's, let's go into gear. Cause a lot of the students are like super, you know, gear nerds. So what, what would you say is your favorite, uh, piece of musical equipment that, you know, your go-to? Oh, I got so many. I mean, I know. Like, um, to me, gears, it's, it's, it's a toolbox. You show up to the construction site with more than just one hammer and one, and one screwdriver, <laughs> you know? Right show us with a toolbox or a truck full of tools you know? right and whatever whatever the job uh calls for 
I, I do a lot of uh, projects, you know, people that I've never met. And if the music is really good, I'll, 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 pl I'll play on their tracks. Cool. And I, I cast, I audition my basses. I, I have a room. I mean, th these are just my, my, my to go bunch of nice. instruments that I got here. And, you know, and they're all different. They all sound very different. They have different, mm -hmm. different uh, tones to them. And, but, but they're close to me. So I grab them and I go, okay, yes, no, yes, no. And, and I record them and I A, B, and B. And so, you know, that process takes a little bit longer for me because I'm not a cookie cutter type of a musician that I just lay down tracks and I use the same, same everything for every track that I do. No, no, because I, I, that's not my approach. It's never been my approach in the studio. Uh, I, especially in the latter days when I was working, uh, uh, I, was, I was in a band, the band Dio with Ronnie James Dio. Yeah. And he was the most, uh, character his voice he became a personality in the songs he wrote all his lyrics and he was a, a uh, english major in college so his lyrics are very personal but heroic at the same oh, time yeah. you know and my role as the bass player in the band was really defined by his by his quests, musical quests. <laughs> like every time he started a song, he was either either a, a wizard or yeah. the man of the Silver Mountain. It's the stuff that makes you go like, yeah, you know, that's yeah, a, that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and, and, and I wasn't alone. I mean, it was like the whole audience was held captive by right. his performance, you know. So, yes, I mean, on stage, because you're on tour and you're limited to how much you're going to bring with you. So you basically probably heard me play with one or two basses with deal. But recording wise, different. I would have a, a totally different approach. You know, that certain character in the song, I would have to like cast one of my basses, you know. And according mm -hmm. to, to the timbre that was needed, also, I would listen to the guitars. I would listen to the drums. See, see how that my bass fits in the frequencies. Uh, usually, send a unless unless a DI a direct clean bass source is requested. I would send to the engineer what I felt was the tone that was suitable for the for that song, the bass tone. Completely right. done, because if sometimes if you leave it up to to the engineer, they'll oh, get started no. with information, and they're just going to leave it as it is, and your track, your bass track, will be like this this big, surrounded by saturated guitars and mm -hmm. drums, and and you're like this. So what I tell you to do is, is have, you know, this is where my bass should be, and I'm going to send them a track that is that big, that fits Smart. with everything else. Yeah, right. Yeah, relying on the uh, the sound guy, the front of house guy, it, it can be a nightmare. I just did a gig in Vermont for New Year's Eve, and we had to play all, it was a corporate uh, ski resort thing. And we had to play a lot of different genres of music. And on stage, it sounded amazing. But when I listened to people on the break talking, they're like, I don't hear your guitar. I'm like, well, I, yeah. I just played an hour and a half. Why didn't anyone tell me you couldn't hear me? Yeah. 
Yeah, it happens. It really does. It sure does. I'm in a band, uh, uh, the guest here, and we have a really great uh, front front of the house engineer, and yeah, he mixes us just just like a record, you know. That's what you want. And, yeah, and my favorite basses, I have a uh, signature model uh, Spectre. Spectre, right? Yeah, which is an incredible instrument. Uh, I have a signature model uh, acoustic bass guitar with a company called Sawtooth. I'm really, really proud of that. So, you know, those are two, two, two of my favorite instruments. But then again, I have like, you know, collectible stuff, vintage oh, yeah. instruments. And, and sometimes, you know, you think, okay, this vintage instrument is going to sound really good with this track and you plug it in and you go, man, it just gets lost. It doesn't have the personality. This, this one thing about vintage, like I have the 66 precision that I love. But I usually bring it in if if I'm going to a studio with an engineer, so they'll because they know how to, how to make it make it sound, you right. know, the way it should. I am very limited in my knowledge and in outboard gear that I have at home. I so the best that I can hope for is when I record and I send something over that there's going to be an engineer that can sweeten it up, even though I've mentioned to you that I send it pretty much ready, but there's a difference of this and then ooh, making it like right. that, you know, applying like certain compressors and, mm -hmm. you know, certain, just sweetening up the EQ a little bit. Sure. Basically put it to, to the same bus or the same board. See, I don't have a board at home. Everything is through with a module, you know, a, a converter. Mm -hmm. Once the records that I work on and I just send my track to engineers, they have a board. So right. everything's going, everything else is going through the same board and boards have a correct characteristic, tonal characteristic yes. to them. So everything else is copacetic with that. Tone. Right. Yeah. Right. You run everything through a Neve. It's going to sound amazing. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Because everything is going through a Neve. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, all right, let's see what else we got in my, my list of questions here. Ah, good questions. Um, what was your, uh, okay, this is kind of ties into the gear stuff, but have you ever, the answer is probably yes, but follow my train of thought. So things go wrong. And again, we're a school, so our students are dealing with not only the anxiety of performing in front of people now, but, oh my gosh, what if I break a string? What if one of my pedals breaks, you know, at, the scale that you're doing gigs, how do you cope when something goes wrong with your gear? Uh, I use the Adario strings. Me too. <laughs> for about 10 years, never broken a string. I think the days of breaking strings for bass, unless you're doing like a Billy Sheehan that you're just pulling <laughs> you know, really high. And I, yeah, those are pretty much gone. So I, I, have, I go on stage with the total confidence that my Diazeria strings, they're going to they're gonna sound great. They're not going to break. They're not going to, you know, they're not even going to go out of tune. Right. I, I, use, a, uh, I use different, different tuners. I use either a Snark mm -hmm. or a TC Electronics, those little clip-ons. Mm -hmm. I, do, I do my own tuning between songs. I'm one of those compulsive tuners, you know. Even though it doesn't go out of tune, but still. Peace of mind. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I do. I'm like, 
you know, compulsively tuning my my bass. Uh, I don't know. As, as, as pedals, I use uh, dark glass pedals and some Boss pedals. Uh, different different companies. Uh, Tech Twenty One, Solo nice. Dallas. Yeah, I'm just looking around at this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> You know the pedals travel with me in my, in my in a bag because I use them on stage and then I bring them home from after you know we usually tour on the weekend so rarely do mm -hmm. we do like a ten day stretch you know right and uh, so they come home with me and I use them when I record at home or in the studio somebody else's studio that I might happen to go to and then I go back on the road again and and they come with me in a in a uh, in a, in a uh, backpack so cool. uh they really don't break i mean I, and it, see with me the pedals is i i leave them on all the time i'll have like let's say a uh, vintage ultra from dark glass and the hyper luminal which is the uh, the compressor and i just i get a tone i i use in ears the ultimate pro in ears and and it sounds perfect right you know, I only, I only use one ear, one side, and then the other one is just for ambience because we right. we, still, we 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 play with some volume on stage, mm -hmm. so it's all balanced. And yeah. I mic uh, an Ampeg SVT, which is my my amplifier of choice for Great choice. decades. Yeah, and a mic for, for a uh, I believe that we're using uh, Sennheisers. You know, we carry our own mics. Right. And put that in, on one speaker, and and is exactly the same tone that I'm getting on stage is what comes through my in ear, and it's just it's wonderful. That's very cool. It's interesting you leave one out because I was uh, about a month and a half ago. I was talking to this guy Jake Bowen. He plays in a band Periphery, uh, three guitar band, very technical, sweet picking, heavy eight string, seven string guitars, and uh, they're using the Axe FX three. Mm. uh for, for their everything and it's all in ears no stage volume no nothing mm. and to me that's super disorienting i want to feel the music a little bit so i like that you have one and not both yeah yeah I, I, i've watched performances of bands on stage that do not have the back line and it's weird <laughs> because if you stand in front of the band you don't hear anything it's right. Like, you know, it's either coming out of like these little monitors on on like little wedges pointing yeah. at the audience. It's like this. Come yeah. On. Come on. I mean, and then again, I'm old school. I mean, I, I used to go with Ozzy on, on stage, uh, four SVT cabinets, and at least, nice. and everything was everything that that was on stage was plugged in. Awesome. But then uh, you feel the air moving like that's yeah, well, well, that's a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And then the side fills were like massive side fills, you know, and, and mm -hmm. then you have wedges in front of you and all of that going on. I, I, I guess, I guess for the performer to be able to just to hear themselves through the in-ears and there's nothing else going on on stage. Okay. That's fine. But I, I'm, I'm more concerned with the audience. Right. Um, they're not going to hear it. Right. Unless they're they're they happen to be standing right next to the uh, to the uh, front of the house uh, front of house uh, right. sound guy, you know, 
because that's 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 the sweet spot. The right. rest of oh, the totally. Is, yeah, it's not it's not going to be feeling the energy, and it's not going to air. It's not going to be moving. Mm -hmm. It should be air moving. That's another thing that I hate is the those fishbowl drummers, not the drummers, but to see a drummer being put in a situation where they're inside of a fishbowl. Oh, uh, it's worse. Glass cages. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What's that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing? Yep. You know, first of all, you got in-ears, and, and I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, uh, the, the, uh, the symbols going to leak through your, the singer's microphone and, and your in-ear and all of that is like, yeah. It's like, how long have you been doing this? Right. I mean, it's like, how did you put up with this before? Right. You know, you know this is not going to make you a better singer, you know. And it's not going to save your hearing because if you're cranking those headphones, there goes uh, your hearing. Shoot, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd say I just saw a question on here, and then I'm going to probably wrap it up just because they're going to shut us down right after an hour. And I... I'm notorious for talking and then we it just abruptly stops oh, but boy. some someone asked a question and um, i think it's a brilliant question i haven't heard it what do you eat before your performances because you're an energetic very you know you're a rock star you are fun to watch play what what what's what, what's your diet like like yeah i when i'm on the road my lunch is my main meal i'll eat before 1 2 o'clock wow yeah, and that's for an eight o'clock performance. So I give it a six hours. I might have a uh, protein bar right after sound check, and and that's it. Wow. And then when I'm home, my main meal is dinner, and breakfast will be a smoothie, some yogurt, things like that. Yeah. I Interesting. I really don't need that much food, you know, <laughs> to sustain myself. I don't. Right. I, I, I don't know if this is if this is something that is a thing already in your area, but uh, in California, CBD. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I take CBD products. Yeah. No, you, no, yeah, no THC. It's just right. CBD. Yeah. Do you find it helps? Oh, a thousand percent. How do you do it? Do you do the tincture or the cream or what's your... Well, uh, this one is a company called Life Pack Organics, and it's a powder. Uh, oh. there's, there's different products, uh, and, and and the best way to take them, okay, uh, there is a, a powder that you put in your in a hot beverage, like in oh. your coffee in the morning, and you stir, and you drink it, and that's it. And it just it clears me completely. It gets rid of my fog. That's awesome. You know, when I'm on the road, I take the capsules. They have like little capsules. It's, mm -hmm. because it's easier to travel with. You don't have to deal sure. with the powder on the road. Right. And um, yeah, but but they have different different products. They have roll-on for like sore muscles and especially when you're playing. And Yeah, I've seen the cream for arthritis. Yeah, it works. They're amazing. Amazing. I'm talking about life-changing, amazing stuff. That's amazing. Yeah, Life Pack Organics. And, you know, they have a, a web page and stuff. Yeah. Cool. Well, check that out, man. That That's... Yeah. See, you learn new stuff all the time. Yeah. That, that's very cool. Well, they're going to shut us down in five. Oh, so no. I yeah, I know. <laughs> We're too um, loud. <laughs> let me see. All right. Yeah. yeah we got to go home. They pulled a plug. Um, yeah, I feel like I got all the questions. You, your stories were so cool. Thank you so much for being part of this. 
and uh, I actually ordered your book off Amazon this morning, oh, so I'm excited to read that. Oh, yeah. Got to give, give a shout out to some friends in, in Holland. 100%. And Mickey. Mickey is actually Adrian Vandenberg's daughter and a dear friend. I just wanted to add that. <laughs> awesome, dude. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, that we had, I mean, I see people from Istanbul and St. Louis and Argentina and Brazil. So we're, we're global right now. So, so mean, that, we, we could have done this in Spanish. Yeah, apparently, because there's Hola, a lot amigos, of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm looking through these. Awesome, dude. Well, thank you so much. This thank is you, like, uh, I've been on cloud nine all day. Thank you. Thank you to everybody and, uh, that tuned in. Thanks a lot. Stay safe. And then uh, hopefully I, I get to catch you in real life one of these days. Okay, you got it. Thanks. For sure. Bye -bye. Okay.